0: expand your life with another episode of Live On Purpose Radio. And joining me today is Michelle Wooker. She is a strategist for companies, associations, and organizations worldwide to help them do some really important things. She's also an an author and a speaker and a trainer uh, based on her expertise. Her book, The Gray Rhino is the most recent of several books that she's published and we're going to talk a little bit about the content of that book today. Michelle, welcome to Live On Purpose Radio. Delighted to be
1: here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: The gray rhino. I'm picturing myself out on the savannah about to be trampled by this large animal. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I want you to do. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and, and really the premise of this book is that we have to watch out for some obvious dangers that we might ignore. We're most likely to get trampled by some things that might actually be more obvious than we know. And and I think I'm capturing at least some yeah. of the essence there of, of the gray rhino. Talk to us about that that book and what's behind it.
1: Sure. Well, it is a bit of a paradox because we assume that if something's obvious, well, we're dealing with it or somebody's dealing with it or, you know, those are the things that we've got under control. And my point is that we need to stop assuming that. Take, take some time out, take a fresh look at the obvious because it's the, these, these clear and present dangers, the things that are always there, uh, that we tune out much more often than we'd like to think. It's like living next to a train. You learn to just not listen to it. And so we're particularly vulnerable to these obvious things, the the two-ton thing with a horn that's coming right at you, because it's so obvious. And so we look away because it's so obvious. And so we're even more vulnerable than we are to things that come up all of a sudden because those catch our attention.
0: This is something that I, I, I had my attention called to this by another one of my guests on the show here, Michelle, when, when he said that there are high probability threats that we tend to ignore. And I think that's what you're referring to with the, with the gray rhino. The thing that is, is most likely to clobber us but we're on the lookout for something special you know exactly very much so ordinary
1: yeah and i i designed it for you know sort of big finance or policy or corporate strategy issues as that's sort of the world that i come from but i've been so surprised by how many people have applied it to pretty much everything in their life this this guy in Shanghai a 20something year old with a you know black t-shirt much hipper than I could ever be came up to me and wanted an autograph said you helped me so much with my personal life and oh. it's it's amazing but you know I, when I start talking to people about personal things I'm like you know the boyfriend that everybody tells you you need to dump you know you know when your doctor told you you need to stop eating those cheeseburgers and fries with the shakes all the time people ah. are like Oh, yes, I know exactly what you mean you're so right
0: that's the gray rhino,
1: and it's it's the gray rhino it's a, it's the big thing that's going to trample you
0: You just mentioned uh what the doctor tells us, and we don't want to give it a lot of credibility when he says, "Hey, you need to exercise, you need to eat right, you need to get enough sleep and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah what's the pill that I need or uh, what's the magic formula that, that will help me to be healthy and vital when really it's pretty obvious stuff that we don't always pay attention to?
1: It's, it's the things that our emotions are trying very hard to make us ignore. Uh, we are so hardwired to deny things that we don't want to deal with it. And some of that is a, a protective Bias of human nature that, that sometimes things are so big and scary you just can't let it into your head all at once because if you do, it'll crush you right away. So, really, the way it's supposed to work is that you have a little bit of denial that, that dissipates as you become more able to accept the reality of what's in front of you. Uh, but of course, that often doesn't happen nearly as soon as it ought to.
0: Hmm. for that to come to our awareness is very valuable i'm thinking about some of the feedback you get when you're speaking and someone comes up to you and says oh this has made a big difference for me in my personal life even though that's not what we were talking about in the seminar it it comes to our awareness and then suddenly we're in a different position relative to it
1: yeah, and it's, it's actually led me on my, on my next path. I mean, I, I started out as a financial journalist and then I was you know, sort of a media executive and a think mm-hmm. tank executive and uh, you know, thought deep thoughts all day long and still try yeah. to yeah. Um, and was, was having a really hard time with this because you know, I, I don't write self-help books. And so I right. went to a friend of mine, a um, very good friend who was a, a really good sounding board for for my past couple of books. And I asked him, I said, I don't know what to do with this because it's so powerful. People often ask me, how do I apply the gray rhino to my personal life? And he said, well, it's actually much more relevant to your regular world than you think. He said, I sat down last week with my investment team and we went over the investments that, um, to put it politely, didn't meet our expectations. And he said, in every single case, the clues were there. The red flags were right in the due diligence that we had done. But it wasn't the technology or the product. It wasn't the business model. It wasn't the macroeconomic environment or the business cycle. He said, it was those personal gray rhinos. He said, it was the domestic violence. It was the speeding tickets. It was the driving while drunk. And those were the companies that failed. And interestingly, uh, there's been some research since then that has actually borne that out, that there's a big correlation between CEOs who take uh, bad risks in their personal lives and the decisions that they make on behalf of their companies that don't, don't turn out so well. So I've actually integrated those two worlds together using my friend's insight and really looking into what are the, the, the personal factors The cultural factors, the things from your experience, uh, what your generation is uh, that affect how you make decisions about the big obvious risks in front of you that you need to either do something about or let yourself get trampled by.
0: We shouldn't be surprised by this, but we are all the time. Which is my central point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Calling it to our attention, Michelle, thank you for illuminating the obvious for us. Um, obvious things are not always noticed. In fact, it, it, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about living right next to the train. And I remember a time when our kids were were still very young uh, and we had a, a new baby in the home and and I commented to, To Vicky one day, I said, "I don't think the trains come by anymore at night." And she said, "Oh yeah, they do." (laughs) She had been up nursing the baby, and she heard it rumble by like it always did. And I was being, you know, blissfully away through it. Whereas at first uh, that rumble would wake us up and disrupt our sleep, but you get used to things, and then you start to to accept them. That's just part of the landscape.
1: Exactly, but those are things you know you accept, and you know you you don't have to do something about. And when I started thinking about these these big gray rhino risks and crises, um, I realized that they take a typical path um, that you know starts with denial, as I was talking about. And Mm -hmm. there are different reasons why different people deny. There are different ways to get you out of that stage, mainly involving uh, which emotional buttons get pushed, Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: but I actually realized that there's sort of five stages, which uh, is a bit of an homage to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who also started her five stages with denial, Uh, although the actual stages are a little bit different, but the the plan is really to get from denial uh, all the way through to action, which is her acceptance, uh, to get through as fast as you can uh, so that you can be doing something about the thing in front of you. And not just sitting there.
0: Five stages. I'm intrigued. It, <laughs> is the first one denial?
1: It most certainly is. In fact, once I realized the first stage was denial, I had to run out and and get her book.
0: Uh, um, yeah. Uh,
1: the second one is muddling, um, or kicking the can, uh, and that's the stage where you say, "Yes, there's a problem, but here are 472 reasons why I'm not going to do anything about it." Uh, Uh, you know, I don't have the resources. Oh, there's no political will. Oh, it's just a complicated problem Uh, there there are a lot of things particularly big policy issues big government issues But you know on a personal level people often use it for for health issues Uh, Mm -hmm. So what you want to do in the modeling stage is figure out Why you're modeling, you know, what are the obstacles? and from there you flip the switch to the next stage, which I call uh, diagnosing, which I have, has some elements in common with, with bargaining. But it's, it's really about changing your mentality from why you're not going to do something to how you're going to do it. Do you have the resources? Well, if not, how are you going to get them? Do you have the people on board that you need on board? No. Well, if not, what does it take to get them on your side and helping you to fix this problem. Mm-hmm. Is there a clear solution? And that's that's the tough one, because there's some cases where there's no good solution. But really going through and coming up with an action plan, figuring out uh, what you need to do, a much more tactical and operational approach. So that's the, mm-hmm. the, the third stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The third I'm, stage,
0: go ahead. I just have to comment about this one real quick. and and. For me, it, it all comes down to a paradigm shift. When you uh, talked about this diagnosing stage, and you said we're changing from all of, uh, illuminating all of the reasons why we can't do something to asking a simple question, how can we? What will it take? That's a huge shift. It and, is, and it doesn't come naturally. No, but it can come by choice. Absolutely.
1: It's a habit to to create. Once you get in the habit, it becomes so much easier.
0: It's interesting that choice is so simple, but not easy. Because until we see it as a choice, it's not. And what I love about the work you're doing, Michelle, is, is that you're illuminating for us something that should be obvious, but it's gone unnoticed until you call it to our attention.
1: And I love that you get that because I get so much defensiveness a lot of times. They're like, well, of course we're dealing with the obvious Ah, things. What are you talking about? We don't need a book for that.
0: (laughs) Right. Then why is it so helpful? Ah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If we're so good at dealing with obvious problems, why the heck do we have so many things, that these Uh, wicked problems that aren't being solved? Don't you get it?
0: Michelle, when we come back from this break, I want to hear, you promised us five stages. We got three. Um, We'll come back from this break and get the other two and also maybe dive into some of the um, strategic ways that we can approach this. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Two more coming up. Awesome. Folks, this is Michelle Wooker today at Live On Purpose Radio. We'll be right back. drpauljenkins.com And we're back. Michelle Wilker at Live On Purpose Radio today sharing her brilliance. You know what, Michelle? It's kind of funny because you and I both get to illuminate the obvious to people.
1: And I love it. I think that's why we're having such a great
0: conversation. Yes, but yeah obvious things are not always noticed and it's cool that we can make a living doing this.
1: It's really cool and it's what I love is seeing the impact on people when when I do yes. a workshop, you know, I I've, I've done it with 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 corporations, with trade associations on all sorts of topics on, you know, pers- from personal leadership to, you know, really geeky financial issues.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's
1: so cool at the end seeing people come out with here are, you know, these three things I'm going to do because of this conversation. Wow. And yes, I started my career as a journalist and they're like, you're just telling the story. And it was, it was a while before I started seeing stories have real world impacts and things uh-huh. happen. People change the way they think. People change their actions. One article changed the course of a presidential election, literally. Um, and so I'm always thinking about impact and in my spare time i'm a mentor editor for something called the op-ed project which helps people to to get their voices out into public debate and the first thing i always ask my mentees is whom do you want to do what because you wrote this article so i i love your um i love your perspective as well because you're you're similar you're producing
0: concrete impact in people's lives it's such a thrill to see the lights go on when somebody gets it. Uh, I say the lights go on. You know, they, there's this moment. We call it the aha moment when that obvious thing that was unnoticed becomes apparent when, it, when it's there. Because then we're in a position where we can do something different with it. I want to I want to go back to these stages, too, because I think that there's more richness there than we might even have acknowledged yet. You said that it starts with denial, and the denial is not necessarily intentional denial. It might simply be that we've habituated to something to the point where we don't, we don't honestly see it.
1: It's, it's partly that. It can be uh, subconscious. Uh, there's also something called manufactured denial, uh, which is a little more sinister. It's when there are people out there who have an interest in you not seeing the problem. Oh, yeah. And so it comes from you know, the, the, the media that you listen to, uh, what the government says, what your peers say. Uh, so some of the way we perceive things is, is a function of the environment around us. Um, But being, you know, being aware of uh, whether you are denying something or not is, is so important. When the book was about to come out, I did a a trial run of my speech at the co-working space I use. And this woman came up to me and she says, oh, wow, the end of my marriage was a gray rhino. Uh All my friends saw it coming and they kept trying to tell me and I just didn't want to hear it.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that... that denial moves into you shared the second stage was muddling and that's where we start just kind of churning it around and recycling it in a way that's not particularly productive and we're coming up with all of the well i can't do this because kind of i call it a victim mindset from yes perspective
1: hemming and hawing and blah blah lying and just focusing
0: on the obstacles right All the reasons why I can't. Yes. You might as well just apply the back of your hand to your forehead and (laughs) sigh heavily because this is the victim paradigm, right?
1: Yes, you you need some vapors or something.
0: (laughs) Now that moves into diagnosing. And this really uh, caught my attention, Michelle, when you shared it just before the break because we're changing from that victim role that. going over all the reasons I can't do this to finding at least one way through asking how can I do this instead that's a huge paradigm shift
1: it's so simple but so powerful And, and like the gray rhino itself I mean it's a really simple idea that you take a fresh look at the obvious but once you really embrace it it it's wow. I use it all the time for my own life, for my career, for, mm-hmm. for policy questions. And it's, it's funny how sometimes the simplest things are the most powerful.
0: Right. You know, I, I have to share just a little application that my son came up with it at one point. When he was a teenager, he figured out that if he approached me and his mom in a different way, he would get very different outcomes. And so instead of saying, hey, can I do this, he asked, mom, dad, what would it take for me to? (laughs) A smart kid. Is that brilliant? Very smart kid. And that to me fits in this stage of of the diagnosing and moving from why not, uh, why can't I, to how can I? What's after that, Michelle?
1: So the next, the next one, um, and I, I love to use for this, that, that Edvard Munch painting of The Scream. Um, mm-hmm. which, and I gave a speech in Norway. They loved it. He's a <laughs> Norwegian painter. But it's panic. Yeah. Panic. It's the stage where everybody waves their hands and says, somebody do something. Anything, just do something.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: <laughs> it's, the, it's the double-edged sword. Because when you're panicked is when you're most likely to do something, Anything. Mm-hmm. But it's also the time when that thing is most likely to be the wrong thing. Um, I'll I use a, an economic policy uh, example here, which is boom and bust cycles. How often do we see that at the height of a boom, uh, the government comes out and says, oh, we're going cut to tax, cut taxes, we're going to do a stimulus at the very top, which is actually when you should be paying down debts, because once you're at the top, the next direction you're going to go is down
0: uh-huh. and
1: and they don't think about belt tightening until they're already sliding quite rapidly down the other side of the mountain and then of course that makes the cycle worse and right. uh, so, you know we see that in every single economic crisis it drives me absolutely crazy um, but so what i like to do is uh, to get people to think instead, about pa- instead of panic, because you really don't want to spend any time in that stage at all if you don't have to, uh, is to think about urgency. You know, what, what do you need to do to create a sense of urgency? And the other part is, hopefully, you spent enough time in the diagnosing stage so you've got a nice plan to hand to people, so you've got this combination of urgency and a good plan. Uh-huh. I- I was doing one workshop uh, once with, with a trade group, and uh, everybody had their own gray rhino at their table, and we were going through the stages. And this one guy raises his hand. Um, we were working on panic, and he says, "What if you miss the first three stages? You just don't do denial. You don't do muddling. Don't diagnosing where the thing comes right on top of you, and panic is your first <laughs> stage." Yeah. <laughs> and it was a good point. But you know the truth is, you have to be in really, really serious denial for that to happen, or it has to be a, a true surprise. Uh, right. But what you want to do is, is right. get a way to find a way to make something urgent. Uh, one of my favorite examples is a friend who was writing a book, and she was having writer's block and having trouble. And so finally, she sat down, and she said, Michelle, I'm going to give you a check for $1,000. There are 10 chapters in the book every time I give you a chapter, give me back hundred dollars. I said, okay, as long as you promise that there are only 10 chapters in the book. Ah. And, uh, and so that's how she finished the book that, you know, when she yeah. needed a little extra spending money, she's like, okay, I got to finish it. That created a sense of urgency and a deadline.
0: Yeah. And so
1: if you, if you take a big task and you chop it up into little chunks it makes it much easier to feel a sense of urgency on each step. I mean, it's basic project management principles. Um, right. But it also has the effect of making it feel more manageable because mm. one of the reasons people don't do something is that they feel that they have no sense of, of human agency, that a problem like climate change just feels so big that, that they don't feel that anything control. is big enough.
0: Yeah, right. There's, there's one more still.
1: Yes. So the last one, um, hopefully, um, is, uh, action. I guess action. if, if you don't take action, the last stage is you get trampled, splat, and <laughs> it's a cleanup. But we're, we're just, just not going to think about that option because that's not where we want people to go. So the last stage is action, which is, uh, what it thinks, what, what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, it's taking your plan, putting it into place. Hopefully you're not just picking up the, the pieces, but the thing to understand about action is usually you get a few mavericks, uh, early adopters, people who got the problem early on, who started trying to change things. Often their action is to try to convince everybody to come along with them. Come along. Um, but so what you want to ask yourself is you know, who's, who's acting? Who are all the stakeholders? Who can, I, who can I get to join in the action? And then as you're acting, track yourself. Uh, ask yourself: Is this effective? Uh, how do, do I need to change a little bit to make this more effective? And also, tracking gives you a sense of achievement. I I often show people my Fitbit in the speeches that I give because that's what I use to see if I'm uh, if I'm active enough. So it's a matter of of, of doing, uh, getting more people to to join, and making sure that the things that you're doing are working. And if not, tinker with
0: them Uh, without the action it's just a bunch of thinking and and this is what puts uh, puts it into reality and helps it to manifest the things that we really want to create in our lives absolutely
1: and i think there's something else that's very important to to think about is that a lot of people are afraid of acting because they're more afraid of doing the wrong thing than doing nothing That's very important to recognize. And it's important to realize that sometimes, even if you do something that seems like the wrong thing, it's, it's changed the dynamic so that it's hopefully getting you one step closer to the right thing. Uh, my favorite example of this is, uh, is New Coke. And I spent the mm-hmm. summer in, in Germany, the summer that they introduced it in the United States. And uh-huh. so my friends and I felt a little bit smug because <laughs> they still had regular Coke in Germany. So wow. I, I didn't have to drink that stuff. I drank Dr. Pepper anyway. But um, <laughs> <laughs> So New Coke had seen um, you know, their market share. I mean, Coke had seen that their market share was going down. And they also saw that consumers were more likely to want sweeter drinks so they did all these focus groups and things and they finally decided okay we need something that's that's sweeter and more like pepsi mm-hmm. so they introduced it and of course this is often cited as a case study in corporate disasters because everybody protested to the heavens that this stuff is terrible blah 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 yeah they they had missed this incredible brand loyalty that people had and you know how much people hate change And so, of course, they had to bring back, you know, quote unquote, classic Coke. And it's a big ruckus. Um, But the part of the story that doesn't get told often enough is that after they went through that whole mess, their market share started going up again. So it actually achieved what they wanted. It wasn't a straight path. And... You have to remember that, that actions often aren't necessarily a straight path. They aren't necessarily the path that you set out in your brilliant diagnosing pa- plan. But it's much better to do something than nothing, even though it feels scary to do something.
0: And at the very least, that might just disrupt the system enough that you can come in and create something even better than you had thought about before. And I think exactly. That's a good example for that. Michelle, thank you so much for your contributions here today. I know uh, there's a lot more that we could talk about. I want to make sure that our listeners have um, a clear path to get to you. I think thegrayrhino.com is a place where they can learn some more about you. Is that a good place for them to land? That is a
1: great place. Um, it's gray with an A, G R A Y. Although with an E will get you there too, but <laughs> with an A is more direct. Uh, there's a lot more information there uh, about the book, the Gray Rhino, which goes into a lot more detail about these stages, a lot more about the the stories and the strategies and examples.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, there's there's also a lot there. Uh, I have some guest columns from people doing really very interesting work there's there's clips from the things that i'm writing in the media i'm also on linkedin
0: Beautiful. i've
1: got a weekly column that comes up there so follow me there you can connect with me there as well but the is is a great place and also on twitter at wucker w-u-c-k-e-r
0: wonderful michelle you've made a great contribution here today i love what you're doing and the way that you're doing it as if you needed my approval. Um,
1: <laughs> but, but it's nice to have it, because I'm, I, I'm so impressed by what you're doing too, and you're making a great contribution and connecting people, so so it, it, it's worth it. <laughs> it. It's really valuable to Absolutely.
0: me as well. Absolutely, Folks, you've heard it today from Michelle Wooker. Uh, the Gray Rhino is where you want to go to find out more about Michelle, about her work, about her books, and take this information that we've learned here today hopefully like myself you felt inspired to actually do something take some action uh based on the conversation we've had here today and now it is time to go live on purpose